staying in here. As I mentioned, we're headed to John 2. And while you're headed towards that passage, let's just do a little bit of waking up. Name something you hope your kids never bring home with them. Head lice. Head lice. <laughs> what else? Bugs? Anything else you don't want your kids to bring home? What's that? Snakes? Problems? <laughs> Here's what they said. A snake. There you go. Boyfriend or girlfriend. Okay. Cops. Germs. Bad report card. Stray cat number one. Number one. Somebody said it already. Head lice. They don't want to bring them, bring them home. Name an item you might save up money to buy or to pay for. Anything these days. Okay, there we go. <laughs> gasoline. Oh, yeah, gasoline. What do you got? Something you'd save up for. Car. House. Refrigerator. Appliances. Clothes. What did somebody say? Food? Food? Here we go. A phone, a computer, a vacation trip, a wedding ring, a car. Number one was a house. Here's one. Name food items that go with peanut butter. Jelly's going to be there. Marshmallows? Bread? Celery? Banana? Boy, are we learning different people's food habits, right? Yeah. What'd you say? Carrots. Somebody said celery. Here's what they said. Celery, carrots, Oreos. You eat, do you dip the Oreos in, in no, peanut butter? There's peanut butter in Oreos? Really? Really? Well, peanut butter comes in anything anymore. Okay, bananas, chocolate, and jelly was number one. Name an event or occasion when it would not be wise to start laughing out loud. Funeral. Church. Yes, you have to be very serious here. No giggling, no laughing. What else? What's that? Somebody's wedding? Yeah, that probably would. <laughs> Here's what they said. A church service, a wedding, court cases, probably, especially if you're on trial. Um, traffic stop. That would be true. You know, laughing at the cop probably isn't going to be real good. Name some crooks or corrupt characters specifically identified in the Bible. Uh, we're talking New Testament. Judas is going to be up there. Ananias. Okay, and Sapphira. Any others? Corrupt characters. Herod. Okay. Here's what I had put down. Thieves on the cross, Zacchaeus, the temple hucksters, and Judas. And the reason the temple hucksters are there, because that's what we're talking about this morning. Let's go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We talked about the wedding. Now we're talking about Jesus in the temple. And if you were with us last week, what happens is in this situation, Jesus is visiting the temple area as an adult. He started his ministry already. Baptism, temptations taking place. And the problems in the temple, just to summarize real quick, what, what were the issues in the temple? Anybody? Money changes. What were they doing? They were exchanging money, but what's the big problem? Anybody remember? Okay. Okay. What were, what were the money changers doing? Charging exorbitant exchange rates, really high. There was animals in the temple, but there usually were, but this time the animals were, yeah, being sold. And again, the selling was being done at... High prices. Okay, and so the Sadducees basically, and the Sadducees are the group. When you're reading your Bible, remember the Sadducees are in charge of the temple. They're the priestly group. The rabbis are in charge of what other institution? Sadducees had the temple. Rabbis had the... the no, the Sadducees and the rabbis worked together, but mostly Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. What was the local gathering place? Synagogues, and that's where the Pharisees had their you know, their most important influence, and so the Sadducees developed this racket that because of many many foreigners coming in, that they were going to 
create a, an economic monopoly where they would sell sheep that they had approved or their, their hirelings had approved. And then also they were saying you have to pay in Jewish coins your annual temple tax and they were charging up to 12%. This would be, you know, just extremely exorbitant prices for, uh, for if they were happening today. That would be exorbitant, you know, interest rates and high prices and things to the point that if that top part, that open area at the top, that court of the Gentiles was filled up with these money changers, with the animals that were being sold, so that the court of the Gentiles, they couldn't worship in there. They couldn't come and pray. And so Jesus comes in, and what we talked about already, before we look at his conversation, Jesus made a whip, he chased them out, the animals he chased out of the temple. Um, and then it's, by the way, when he does it the second time, at the week of the uh, the week of Passover, right when he is then going to be crucified later in the week, then he stands in the doorway and he keeps them from coming back in. And so this time he poured out the money and we have made this observation that there's a couple of reasons. One is because if he's very zealous. That is commented here when he makes the, when his disciples afterwards say, Verse 17, they remembered it was written, the zeal of your house hath eaten me up. So they say it because he's zealous. The other reason that we pointed out, and you can look at these passages uh, that we looked at last week, there's messianic prophecies that said when Messiah would come, he would purify the temple, purify the priests, he would get the traitors out of the temple, and they are referring most of the time to when he sets up his millennial kingdom, but there, is a, there could be the dual application that during his lifetime he did the same thing. And so with that in mind, um, here's where we want to pick up now. So he says to the merchants, he says in verse 16, take these things hence or out of here. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Any words in there that's, that would be abnormal or strike the attention, get the attention of the people? Besides get out. My father. Why is that kind of unique? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and so that wasn't typically the idea. It was you would use our father would be more common, and so he's identifying his uniqueness with the father. And so Jesus, very simply, we know this, that he wanted them to get rid of this merchandising. Later on is when he says this, that you've made it a den of thieves. But this, the, the most impacting part is the same thing he said when he was 12 years of age. This is my father's place, and so he's identifying who he is and making, he's making a messianic claim here which is very important that we would understand. So he made it very unique and very clear. What do the words teach you? Now here's where I I want you to just think for a second. Because of this text, some have concluded it is wrong at any time for any kind of a religious institution to ever sell anything. For instance, when we've had like creation conference, and uh, the people ask, can we, can we put some books out that we have that we'd recommend that you could buy? And, um, and some, some folk have responded over the years to just say, you should never sell anything in church based on this text. Is that what Jesus is getting at? Okay, my, re- my response to that is, you know, we want to be careful. We're not here to be making profit. Okay, we're not a business. We understand that. We're a nonprofit organization. Um, but at the same time, uh, why would we sell? Why would we have a bookstore where we sell you at a decent price, books, tapes that you can be confident in that would be helpful to you? And is that an is that a anti-biblical thing to do, for a church to do any kind of selling? I don't think so. I don't think that's the point of this story. Um, for this reason is, when we look at what they, the, was the issue them selling anything? Was that the problem? What, what was the issue? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, because it was designed, it was, God designed the arrangement of the temple to be for bringing people in. Now, now they got rid of the place. So it's, the, it's an abuse of, of the facility that we're selling to the neglect of the Gentiles. Was there any other reason that you would say, hey, their problem with buying and selling was? Yeah, exorbitant profit. Yeah, 
And so we look at and say, okay, the, the problem with the commerce in that time was what you'd said here is that it made it impossible for certain people to even worship. It forced people out for the sake of, of selling things. That's wrong. That's, that would be wrong. Done for personal profit, and, and uh, Mike, you brought up the profit. We'll add to it. It wasn't for the ministry's benefit. It was for the benefit of the guys in charge. So they were, they, were hux- they were making money off of their ministry at exorbitant prices and the exploita- exploitation. Now, with that in mind, let's go a little bit further, okay? Looking at the words and actions of Jesus, what does that tell you about him? If you were teaching a class of third graders and you're talking, you say, what, is, what do you learn about Jesus based upon his reaction, his words, things of that sort? What stands out? Anything? Okay, he loves people, does want to see him take advantage of him. Very good. What else? What does it tell you about Jesus emotionally? Let's start with that one. Okay, well, he's the son of God. Anything? What did you say, Troy? How so? Okay. Okay, okay. Did he express emotions? Yeah. Which one here that kind of catches people off guard? Anger. Is it okay to do that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so here, just for a thought, because, because sometimes we in our, in our thinking, we just jump and say, well, we should, be, we should not be emotional. Okay? And it's like, wait a minute, is there anything wrong with a display of emotions? Even a passionate emotion, as you want to put it that way. There really isn't. And there's nothing wrong even with anger as long as the situation dictates it. And even in the anger, because remember what Ephesians says, be angry, it's a command. And yet what? And sin not. So it's a matter of how we express the anger. It's what we do with the anger. And basically we need to have it under self-control. And the anger has to be, a, as he mentions in Matthew 5, uh, a just cause. And so we know that. Uh, he experienced intense. There, there's probably the, your concept uh, much more that he was very upset about sinful conduct. Okay, we should be the same thing. We should be the same thing. Let's, here, he was proactive when it came to promoting good worship, that caring about people, okay, that he was extremely proactive, which we should be too, promoting worship. Uh, he zealously helped others to worship God in prayer and learning. We should too, for ourselves and others. And we can keep on going and saying he opposed anything that distracted from good worship. Is that a good concept? Try to make sure that we don't become or create a distraction. Yes, no? Okay. Um, so we should avoid having or being a distraction in worship. And, and you all know this is true. It, it doesn't take much to distract us in worship. Uh, you know, so we want to be careful how we influence or affect other people. And then at the same time with the atmosphere we create. He wanted foreigners to learn about and worship God. We saw that. And the idea of helping strangers. We can, here, here's, the, um, here's the thought that strikes me is he is extremely passionate. He tries to have an influence even though he knows it's not going to last. Because a few years later, what does he do? Comes back and it's the same thing. So is there some moments that you feel, what's the use? Does that ever happen? Why even bother? Okay. Um, In our culture right now, do you ever feel like, what's the use? You know, it it is getting so bad. Why even bother? And yet Jesus is trying to um, trying to make an impact, and he knows, and he knows, he's wiser than us, he knows the future. He knows they're going to use it against him. At the trial, they use this to accuse him for being um, blasphemous against the Father. And uh, he knows it's not going to last, and yet he does. So we should be involved in doing that, which is at times unpopular, or even when we don't feel make a difference, but try to be an influence. Here's a question. Think for a moment. Why didn't somebody stop him I mean, he's got, but 
why if, if somebody, if you were a business person and you were a greedy business person and somebody's disrupting your business, what would be the typical response? What's that? Defend what you're doing. Why didn't anybody do that? Any, what, what do you think are possibilities? There's nothing stated here. But why do you think they didn't do anything? What's that? Okay. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. She said that they probably didn't expect him to do anything because they were in charge. Okay. And so he caught him by surprise. That's true. But then, and then, I, then I think, well, it took him a little bit to drive the things out. Why didn't they come in and stop him? What's that? In their heart? Yeah? Okay, I, I threw down a couple thoughts, okay? Um, and that's where I'm going to end up, right where you're at. I, I put down, could it have been? There's nothing stated. Do you remember how in the Garden of, uh, I was going to say Eden, that's the wrong garden, Garden of Gethsemane, what happened when they came to arrest him? Yeah. What's that? Yeah, because they say we come to arrest, and he says, I'm he, the one. And all the 600, they fall down. Could it have been, it's not stated, could it have been they were physically unable to stop? Mm, yeah, we, we don't know that. But I agree with you that it goes this way. He was so morally right, and they knew he was so morally right. How, what are they going to do? They're going to they're gonna go out and defend it? You know, because if they try to defend what they're doing, I mean, the common people know this is all wrong. People as a whole know it's wrong. It's kind of like in our society right now. People, common sense, say, there's a lot of things wrong. And you're going to try to defend this? And so uh, I think they were frozen into inaction because of that type of thing. So what's interesting that, and this is me, you, you probably have never done this as poorly as I have, but in studying the text, I usually stop right about here and get that part of the story. And so for me, it was interesting to go a little bit deeper in the text and remind myself what happens after this. There's an entire conversation that took place afterwards. So we pick up on the rest of it where uh, it says in verse 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign do you show unto us, seeing that you do these things? Uh, basically, what are they asking him? Yeah, what right do you have to do it? Excellent, excellent way of putting it. What, what, by what authority are you doing this? And Jesus answers, that famous answer that's going to be used against him. Destroy this temple and what? And three days I'll raise it up. And then it goes on. They said, 40 and six years was the temple in building and you're going to rear it up in three days. What do they mean by that? Historically, remember, this is the renovated temple. This is now what Herod's project has been. And Herod started this, Grandpa Herod, started this thing 46 years. And it's been 46 years in reconstruction. Can you imagine having a project that lasts 46 years? Can you imagine doing a house renovation that lasts months and months and months? You know, we were talking about somebody not too long ago that I said, I promised you years ago that we would just do our living room on Thanksgiving weekend. And come Easter, we were still working on it. Now, none of you have ever done that, right? But projects take long. And back in Bible days, this is, remember, this becomes one of the huge projects of the ancient Near East. And so it's going to take them a long period of time. And so Jesus wasn't referring to the physical temple. What was he referring to? He's referring to himself, and we understand that. And the writers even said a little bit, he spake of the temple of his body. So John makes it very clear. But understand where they're coming from. Jesus has already, already by his actions, given some messianic symbolism. I'm coming to clean out the temple. We, we talked about those verses last week. And now he's giving a veiled sign about his death, burial, and resurrection in three days and uh, basically saying that he is the temple of God in the flesh and claiming my father's house. And so he's putting himself in an elevated position as being Messiah, which that means he has the authority. 
he has the right to do it. And when they talked in 46 years, and you have all the historical data, and so, but they're saying, give us a sign. And his comment is, I've given you a sign already. I've already come in and cleansed. That's fulfilling prophecy. And my sign will be my resurrection. And you're going to have to acknowledge I physically resurrect. And what do they do three years later? How do they, how do they discount the resurrection? What do they tell people? The Bible's stolen. Okay, and so they're trying to decry it and deny it, even though they suspected it. Because remember, they suspected something could happen because they went to uh, Pilate and they wanted the, the, what did they want at the tomb? They want it sealed, they want it secured. So he's, his comments here are very, very important. He's declaring who he is. He's giving an indication of messiahship, though he's not declaring it fully in every aspect. He's already hinting at it, giving some ob- observable signs of it. And so by virtue of his messiahship, his fulfillment, Father's house, by virtue of his ability to resurrect, which, you know, it's clear that he has to be of God if he's going to bring life back into a dead body. They know that. They read about Elijah. They know Elisha. They, they know the stories of that are very seldom of a resurrection. I'm sorry, resuscitation. And so then what happens is there are more. They asked for a sign. And, and you, you probably caught this, but I, again, I, I in my ignorance kind of just skipped over it. Um, when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered they believed the scripture. Now when he was in Passover, uh, when he was in Jerusalem at this Passover, verse 23, in the feast day, many believed in his name. Why? What, what does he do in the next phrase? He does miracles at this moment. So he is going to give them signs According to Isaiah 28, he's going to give signs to the Jewish people, and he does a series of unrecorded miracles. We don't know what they are at this moment. Uh, John doesn't elaborate upon them, but he does some miracles, and the result is many believe on him. And so he's having a tremendous impact at this moment. And then it says he did not... Now, this is what my English... I have a King James... It says that many believed on him in verse 23. But verse 24, my translation says, uh, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. Does anybody have a different phrase in there? Jesus did not commit himself to them. He did not entrust. What do you have? Anybody else? You know what's interesting? Uh, the word that's, that's used here for commit and the word for believed in verse 23 and 24 it's the same word. So if we were going to make it really literal, we would say that, um, that they believed on him, but he did not believe in them. How does that work? What does the author mean by that? He, yeah. And why were some of, why were some of them believing because of the miracles. This is just so common that the Jews frequently, they believed that he could do miracles, but it didn't mean they put their faith in him as Savior. They just wanted a miracle worker, and they didn't want an impact on his life. So he says, just like Bob said, superficial believers, um, that they weren't really repenting of their sin, but they were going to follow him. In fact, when he goes now, he's going to have more crowds following him but in John chapter 6, many of them will stop following him because he all of a sudden declares a hard, a hard saying of, of true discipleship. And so Jesus knowing the great... And, and the whole story is about him revealing his greatness. You have it how he cleansed the temple, my father's house, did miracles, um, as well as knowing the hearts. It's, it's a phenomenal passage that John is picking to highlight the greatness of Jesus Christ. But you and I can stop and say, okay, if we're going to be Christ-like more and more, then what we want to do is, in a practical sense, we can't do the miracles, but we can impact worship. We can influence, and we should be concerned that our worship is evangelistic, that it's reaching out to get out the gospel to other people. And so that whole idea is just a tremendous, tremendous amount. The next story that follows right on this is Jesus. It's interesting how this uh, plays out. Um, 
where Jesus is really upset, and, and you said he was upset because his concern for the Gentiles. Okay, the non-Jewish people. What's the next story? What does the next story do? Where does he go? Did you just look at the next... The next am I saying this right? No, I'm sorry. Um, I want to jump down to the next story. Is verse 4, chapter 4, I mean. The next story. He has this conversation with Nicodemus. We're sharing the gospel. What does he do shortly after this? Within days, chapter 4. I want to, I'm headed over to chapter 4. Chapter 4, okay? Shortly thereafter, after he leaves this area, in chapter 4, verse 3, he stays in Jerusalem, he talks to Nicodemus, but then when he leaves, where does he go? He goes to Samaria, who are non-Jews. So he puts into practice exactly what he told others to be doing. And so he leaves and he heads up towards Samaria, and this is where we get the account, the woman at the well, which is a phenomenal story. It's just a tremendous story, but let's make sure we understand. In case somebody here doesn't... Who are the Samaritans? Anybody remember? I, I know that they're, they're non-Jews, but anybody remember their, their story? Who are they? From where? Yeah, from Samaria. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot. But you're exactly right. Um, where, did they, where did they originate? We have to go back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have the name the kings. First king. Saul. Solomon. Then what happens? Like Jeroboam, under Jeroboam, Saul, uh, Solomon's son, what does the kingdom do? Got a northern southern kingdom. Okay. And uh, it's split in two. And the northern part called themselves... Israel, the southern part called themselves. Oh, you guys are good. Okay, um, which one is good? Which one? Which one? Are they both good? Both bad? As far as worship, anybody remember? The southern kingdom stayed more faithful. They have five of their kings are good men. The rest were corrupt, and they tried for the most part to stay more faithful. Jehovah worship. What did the northern tribes do? Yeah, they're just bad from the beginning. They're just bad. They have no good kings. They went into idolatry worship. In fact, they even set up their own temporary tabernacle so that the Jews didn't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. So they tried to create this division, and um, over a period of time, then the northern kingdom becomes more and more corrupt. God punishes them. And in time, what happens is the Assyrians come and they pretty much wipe out the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes. Those who are still loyal to God migrated south, but those, the, the bulk of the Jews up in the northern area, they get invaded by the Assyrians. Assyrians are bad people. They're just some of the most corrupt and vile historically. They're part of the, um, in fact, that's where Jonah's supposed to go. And Jonah's the whole story is he didn't want to go there. The Assyrians are the ones that are so vulgar that they, I mean, they did cruelties to people who rebelled against them. The other thing that they would do is when they came and conquered an area, if they came in and conquered this middle section of pews, they wanted to break up your um, nationality, your loyalty, your ability to rebel. So what would they do with this group of pews right here? They would resettle. They'd take a bunch of yous and put you here, here, here in the balcony, and they'd bring some from the balcony over here, 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 and put them in this area. And that would mix up the languages. It would, it would mix up cultures. It would weaken people from any kind of a, a covert rebellion. And by doing this in this region with the Jews, taking some of the Jews out and bringing in others, what did they introduce into these tribes that were still here? more and more pagan idolatry. And it got worse and worse as time went by. And so what happened is, over a period of time now, these people started intermarrying and intermixing, and they, they came to a point where they had Jewish blood couple, several generations black, back, but they were also mixed with other blood. And so they were, um, if I can use the word tongue-in-cheek, they were half-free Jews, partial Jews. And they became the ones that settled in the area and they came to be called the what? The Samaritans. 
So they did have some Jewishness to them. And they did, to some degree, they wanted to keep a little bit of their Jewish, uh, Jewish background. And so in their belief system, what they did is the Samaritans developed a religious system that was similar in three ways to the Jews down in the southern kingdom. So by the time of Jesus' day, Judaism was flourishing once again down in Jerusalem. But in this one region where the Samaritans had populated, right in the middle of Galilee and Judea, Galilee was very Jewish, Judea very Jewish, and following the Old Testament. But in the middle were the Samaritans that had survived for multiple generations. They believed three things that the Jews on, on the bookends believed in. They believed in monotheism, one God. So they kept away from all the polytheism. They also believed that his name was Jehovah. And they believed to a degree in the Pentateuch. By the way, if you can make a comparison, this is exactly where the Sadducees were. The Sadducees held to the Pentateuch, but they questioned the other prophets. And so uh, they, they had this display, but they had their own temple. And they developed their own temple system up on Mount Gerizim, which is in their region. And Gerizim is the place that they said was where Abraham had offered his son Isaac. It was the legitimate place not the place, you know, this, not, not where David originally built the temple. And so they made this to be the holiest place and called this the temple. Uh, and so what happened is this animosity because the Jews looked at them and said they're half-breeds. Even when Nehemiah comes back and starts to rebuild, he doesn't want to work with these people because they're not fully on the same page. And it just, over years and years and years, it got to even be more of a conflict because they were having different temples and different priestly systems. It broke out in active attacks against each other. And now put yourself in Jesus' day, okay? Just years before, a couple generations before, the Jews went up there and they attacked and burnt the temple at Mount Gerizim the Samaritan's temple. Well, that just escalated their animosity. Just a few years, probably two, three years before Jesus was born, the Samaritans attacked the temple in Jerusalem, and they put dead bodies all over the temple, some of them including swine. And so this was an outrage that they would dare do this terroristic attack against the Jewish temple. And so feelings are rising pretty high at this moment by Jesus' day, that they are ancestrally angry at each other, want nothing to do with each other. And so by Jesus' day, if you were living in Jerusalem, I'm sorry, if you were living in Galilee or Jerusalem and you needed to go and venture to one area and do business or come from Galilee down to Jerusalem to make sacrifice, you typically, you would not... You would, you, would buy, you would cross the Jordan River and come down the one side Jordan River so you never had to go into Samaria. Or if you traveled to, Samaria, to, to Galilee, you could make it through Samaria in one day if you left early and you went until late. But you wouldn't lodge in the area of Samaria. And so that was very, very common. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's going to head up into Galilee, and so he wants to, to if, he's, if he's a good Jew, he wants to get through in one day's time. But Jesus isn't stuck in traditions. Jesus is more concerned about people. And so what happens is the story unfolds, and, and it's, it, it, with that background, that makes sense about what's, what some of the comments are. It makes sense when, um, when all of a sudden the disciples come and they notice that he's talking to this woman, and they have, you know, why are you talking to this gal? And having comments. So let's pick up in verse 6. Uh, the, verse 5. Then comes he to the city of in Samaria, which is called Sychar or Shechem, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary of his journey, sat down. It was the sixth hour. Um, there comes a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus says, Give me to drink. His disciples had already gone away to buy some meat. Then said the woman of Samaria to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, would ask me, which am a woman of Samaria, for a drink? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That's so true. So true. 
Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that said unto you, give me to drink, you would have asked of him and he would give you living water. The woman said, sir, I, um, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep from whence will you have the living water. Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself, his children, his cattle? And Jesus said, whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said unto him, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus said, go call your husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I don't have a husband. Jesus' response, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five, and he whom you are now with is not your husband. In that, in that you said truly. The woman said, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour comes that you shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. We know that we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in his spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship in spirit and truth. She says, I know that Messiah comes, and it is called, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus said, I that speak unto you am he. Upon this came his disciples and marveled that he was talking with a woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why do you talk with her? The woman left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said unto the men, Come and see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meantime, while his disciples prayed with him and saying, Master, eat, he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And they wondered, has any man brought him some meat to eat? He said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Say not ye there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields for they are white already to harvest. And then he goes on talks more. Oh man, this is so loaded. Such, so many different lessons that you can draw from here. We, we just put our, ourselves where we're at. Jesus has the conversation. Why is this unusual? Why is it unusual to have this conversation? What's that? He's talking to a woman. He's talking to a woman. Okay? And a woman that he doesn't know. What other reason? She's a Samaritan on top of that. You know, it's kind of weird too. It makes it very clear that this is at a time of the day when ladies weren't at the well. Why is she at the well? Okay, we're getting some information here that's very subtle, okay? She doesn't come when other ladies are there. And we find out later in the story why that is. Yeah, the... Yeah, she doesn't want to be with them and they probably more than likely the other ladies don't want to be with her. So she's an outcast, Okay, and Jesus is talking to her. And so they, they, she's even surprised. You're a Jew and you're talking to me. She understands the culture. And rabbis typically, they didn't, the rabbis weren't supposed to be talking to ladies. Okay, that's the normal cultural thing. The woman's all alone. She's obviously questionable character. And Jesus verifies she has questionable character. Now, what truths do we get out of this conversation? Let, let's just pick up this one. This passage is telling you, John is writing and telling us writers about Jesus. He's telling us that Jesus has two natures. You know this, but pretend you're reading this for the first time. This passage is telling you Jesus is great, he's phenomenal, but Jesus is also human, okay? From that perspective, what in this story tells you he is a real people? Not just a spirit. Okay, he's thirsty, he's hungry, and where did it say? Verse 6, what else is he physically? He's tired, okay? Um, so he's, he, in this text, it's, it's, again, you're reading this for the first time, we're hearing he's a people. He's an outstanding people, but he's a real person. Where do you get in this story his deity? How is John relaying things that tell you Jesus is somebody beyond normal people? He knows all about her, knows absolutely everything about her. Anything else that stands out? 
he offers living water that he defines as not just it has uh, how long will it last? Forever. Okay. So he knows her private life and, and again, again now catch the historical setting that you and I don't get because we know the ending of it so much well. It was commonly assumed that if you're a prophet, okay, you would know all about people. And the, the reverse is true. If you know all about people, you're a prophet. This isn't the only time this comes up. Because even when the Pharisees are saying, this man, if he were, and they question Jesus, when the woman who is of questionable character comes and washes his feet, do you remember that story later on? Their comment is, if he is so phenomenal, if he is really from God, he knows who this woman is. And by the way, did Jesus know who she was? And what she was? Yeah, but they would have, and from their point of view, if he knew what she was, he wouldn't let her, you know, he wouldn't have any physical contact with her because she might defile him. Okay, and, and that's, and that's now think, think Jewish. Think how they look at it. If he were of God, he would not let her touch him because he would defile her. And you and I know the, the total opposite is true. You can't defile Jesus. What does Jesus do with our defilement? He's the one that takes it away. And so the, the stress in the scripture is going countercultural and trying to catch people's attention. And so she says, You must be a prophet. It is interesting. Keep this market in your Bible. The Samaritans believed there would be a prophet. They predicted in their teachings after the Pentateuch. Remember, I said they believed the Pentateuch? In the Pentateuch, it talks about a great prophet. This is Deuteronomy chapter 18. It talks about a great prophet greater than Moses. And do you remember what that pro- who that would be? It, it, it would be the Messiah. Yeah, the Messiah. And they, pre- they believe this. She's saying Messiah is coming. So she believes in a Messiah. She has a whole lot of other things wrong. But she believes in a Messiah. She believes in a prophet. They taught this. After Moses, the next prophet to come would be Messiah. Every, all these others that we talk about, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, you know, Ezekiel, they, they don't count. So in her theology, if he were a prophet, he's got to be Messiah. He's got to be Messiah. So understand where Jesus is working at, where she's at, and he doesn't deny you know, that he's, and he says, if you but knew who I was, I am he, the Messiah. And so this is, he's, he's clearly making his claim here as being the Messiah. Um, and so the comments are, I know Messiah comes, he will tell us all things, Jesus had done it, and then he says, I am he, I'm that one. He claimed to give the living water that Bonnie had mentioned. That living water is very interesting, okay? She responds, how do you do that? Are you greater than Jacob? And she's looking at the physical aspect. You don't have the cup. And he continues his comments on the living water. Understand, again, Old Testament, and what the Old Testament talked, okay? Living water is something that John really makes a theme. He brings it up several times in his gospel. He brings up another, uh, another element. He brings up light an awful lot, light versus darkness. He brings up water an awful lot. The reason he does that is in the Old Testament, there are several different passages that talk about the water, the living water that comes from God. And who would be the person to bring the living water from God? Messiah. And so these people have this under, some understanding of living water different than what we would. Because when we say living water, it, it may not catch us as quickly as it would them. Uh, because in the Old Testament, you have these different passages that talk about when Messiah comes, Messiah is going to have this water that is purifying, that's living, and it's really impacting water that it would really change them, and, and it comes through Messiah. So he's using these terms that in their culture, it makes more significance than when you and I read it here in, Ma, in 2022. And so he's really making strong claims, Messiahship. Messiahship. You're right, I'm a prophet. From your point of view, I'm Messiah. You're right, you know, I'm bringing living water, living water that's going to change you. You're right, I know all things about you. I'm Messiah. 
And uh, from her feeble theology, he's matching everything that what she would think theologically, he's the guy. So he makes it very clear, I'm fully God, fully man. John's giving us this information. He's also giving us a prescription of what is involved in true worship. It's interesting that she does the same argument many people do when you're trying to share the gospel with them. She immediately engages the old debate, which church is the right church? Does that ever happen to you? Yeah. She immediately is is saying not which church, but she talks about which temple or system of worship is the right one. And she jumps right to that age old, where is the true place to worship? Jerusalem or Gerizim? Where did Abraham really sacrifice Isaac? At the mount where Jerusalem, where the temple is built or where the Mount, uh, mount Gerizim where the, the Samaritans have the temple? And they've been debating it for generations. And so she takes them right back to that argument. And Jesus, as a response is, now, now, now think, think of how he phrases it. Put it in our own terms. How does he respond to it? He says there's coming a day where really this debate's going to be finished. You know, and, and it's going to be done. And you know, we can argue all about this. But he makes it very clear. Okay, the real issue isn't where one worships. The real issue is who we worship, who we worship. Okay, and by the way, is that true of different churches today? It really is, really is, because churches all as a whole believe in God, monotheistic, but it's what do we believe about that God? What do we know about him? Who, who is he really? And so he, Jesus gets very pointed. He still holds to this point. And this is very important that from a, from a perspective where he's at, the Jews are still the chosen people. He doesn't fudge on this one. He doesn't fudge on truth. He doesn't try to say, okay, I'm working with you. I'm taking some of your theology. And he's not going to compromise basic theology that says salvation is of the Jews. That is true. Even though that would be a hot topic for her. And she might not like it. It is a historical, biblical fact Salvation comes through the Jewish people. Salvation in Christ. Yes, no? Do you, do you, see, do you see what he does? I am, I am using some of your theology that is, you know, brings you back to Jehovah and different things of that, but the bottom line is salvation is of the Jews. But actually, then he goes on, he says, you know, the real issue is um, salvation isn't limited just to the Jews. And he clarifies, because this is where the Jews were hung up. The Jews were saying salvation is of us, and they took it a step further. It is for us only. Yeah, it goes right back to where they were in the temple. And so Jesus is going to clarify all of that. And he makes it very clear. God wants people. God seeks for people to worship. But the, worship, the method of worship is changing. He says it now is. Now is. This is something changing. The method has been for worship has been What? How have they, they been uh, for generations now? How have the, the Jews and people who worship, how are they doing it? Sacrifices. What's going to happen? Okay, he's going to change it all. Sacrifices will be incomplete. And what does he say is how worship has to be done? This is where we're at now. So this is really important. We got to worship in spirit. spirit. Well, how does that mean? What's that mean? See, this is where we're at now. We're in this spirit and truth time. What's that mean? When you, when you think worship in spirit and truth, what's, how, does that, how does that function? What does that look like? What's that? Okay, okay. Dealing more with the heart than any kind, anything else, right? Would we all agree with that? It's dealing with the inner rather than the ritual. We understand that, yes? Anything else? Okay, okay. Okay, it would be listening, responding to the spirits. And by the way, we have more of that, that interaction with the spirit than they did, right? Excellent. Anything else that would strike you? Go ahead. Right? Okay, and I, and I, I think that is so important because he is bringing her back to what is truth. She, by her theology, what would she claim is truth? The first 
five books. And Jesus is engaging in saying, there's going to be more truth here, including everything he says, okay, which is really important. Anything else that strikes you, spirit and truth? I don't have an answer. I'm, I'm open to your, your comments here. Go ahead, Don. Okay. Okay. He's more intimate, more personal. Because we pray now the way Jesus prayed. Right? Because most of us, how do we address Father? At times we use our Father, but often what do we, how would we do it? Our father, my father, we'd be more intimate. Yeah, Abba Father, excellent. Daddy Father. Anything else strikes you about spirit and truth? Do we, do we need a priest anymore? Do you need clergy between you and God? No, it's very direct. Uh, somebody was going to say? I'm sorry. Yeah, so we have a great benefit here. And so Jesus is, is laying this out of how it works, and we talked about it, you know, spirit and truth, not just ritual. And, and for me, this, this has impact. For me, worship was, as a kid, canned prayers. Did any of you grow up in that type of environment where you had repetitious prayers and your mind could be everywhere, but as long as you were praying the prayer? And so spirit and truth strikes me as we have to be engaged in worship. Like when we sing this morning, you, you probably never have this problem, but sometimes when we sing, I'm not even focused on the words at moments. All of a sudden, my mind drifts. None of you in this room that would happen to. Okay. But sometimes we get mechanical. Yes? No? Okay. And so spirit and truth means I got to stay engaged. Okay, and really be active in it. So we can go on. The real worship will happen when they have a genuine internal righteousness. Why is this so profound? Because both these groups, the Jews and the Samaritans, were very ritualistic. Both of them, guilty as could be. I was careful how I say it. I wanted to say guilty as snot. Um, they're extremely guilty, okay, that they, that they would do that. They, both of them were limiting their acceptance in who, who brought up the truth aspect. There was more. Daniel, you brought up, but there's a whole lot more. Am I rubbing on this thing? I'm getting, or is that just me? Anybody hear that? Okay. Um, so the, the idea that he's expanding the truth aspect, which is tremendous. Both groups were very pious in their outward worship, but very corrupt in their hearts. Okay. Where you and I are saying, hey, what's most important when we come here for worship? What's the most important aspect? What we wear no? Where we sit? Okay, we're more spiritual because we sit in the front row. Okay. Um, no, what's the most important part of our worship? Where our heart is. Where our heart is, not where our body is or what, how, we, how we dress up the body. So it's really impacting, just a tremendous amount. Then he talks about eternal life. We got to stop. But the eternal life aspect, there is stuff in this living water that is very uh, enlightening once we understand where they're coming from, from their perspective of living water. We have faucets. It's had our availability all the time. Totally different culture which would make a tremendous impact. Okay, let's get ready for worship in spirit and in truth, okay? Thanks for...